Hey everyone, welcome back to another fertility-focused episode of the podcast. Fertility and infertility have been really hot topics for a lot of you guys, so I'm really stoked that we're finally getting around to answering a whole bunch of your questions with our amazing guests. So if you've been listening along, you'd know we've done two episodes already specifically focusing on elective egg freezing. So today we're kind of stepping back a bit and taking a bit more of a general look at fertility and infertility. So we're just answering a whole bunch of really common, frequently asked questions and common points of confusion. So I hope you find it useful to answer all of these questions because I'm not a fertility specialist. I was joined by Dr. Erin Fuller and she is a fertility specialist based in Newcastle, New South Wales. Uh, She works from the very aptly named Newcastle Fertility Specialists and also with Janea, which is a fertility service in Australia that a lot of you have probably heard of. Uh, For anyone that's new to listening to this podcast, you can always find us on Instagram or Facebook if you want to send in any questions or uh, request a topic. We're always happy to hear your suggestions. Uh, And always, if you feel so inclined, please leave us a kind review on the podcast app. It is much appreciated. All right, guys, enjoy. Bye. Hi, Erin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Can you just start, I guess, by telling us a bit about yourself and what a fertility specialist actually does? Yeah. So I uh, finished ONG training at the start of um, 2013. I did most of that in Newcastle, but the last couple of years in Sydney. Um, And then since then, um, I joined a fertility practice in Newcastle and I've been working in fertility and also in gynecology and just a smattering of obstetrics ever since then. Um, I only really do um, public obstetrics, so no private. Um, So my, I guess I see my role working as a fertility specialist to see anyone and that can be a couple or an individual who wants to um, either just have any kind of information about where they sit from a fertility perspective or who are actually trying and having difficulty conceiving. Um, So sometimes it's actually working with couples or individuals to um, investigate manage and treat their issues falling pregnant and sometimes it's actually just seeing patients who have conditions that might impact on their fertility and that they want more information about that um, or just want um, a bit of a work up to sort of see where they sit at that point in their lives. Fabulous. That's really good to know because I think there's a bit of a misconception that you only see a fertility specialist if you've been trying to have a baby and haven't succeeded yet. And and there's also a real misconception that you see a fertility specialist equals that you need IVF and that's really not Mm. the case well most of my patients we we would um treat in other ways and then there's a percentage who will end up having interventions like IVF but coming to see me does not equal that that's the end of the story and that's the only thing that we do yeah absolutely and I guess so when it comes to talking about issues around fertility it's also helpful to have a bit of an understanding about what normal fertility actually is could you talk to us a bit about that and how long it would take you know a normal or healthy person to fall pregnant yeah so 
if you're talking about women between the age group of sort of about 20 to 35, about 85 to 90% of couples within that age range will fall pregnant within the first year of trying for pregnancy. So in that age range, not falling pregnant after the first year of trying would be considered a time to look into why they might not be falling pregnant. Because age is super important in falling pregnant, we actually modify that for women over the age of 35 and we say if you've been trying for pregnancy for six months and haven't fallen pregnant then that would be a time that it it would be worth seeing someone and having an assessment to try and look into why you might not be falling pregnant. So it's really sort of broken up into less than 35 and over 35 in terms of what would be the normal amount of time to try for pregnancy before we start looking into things. There are some things that modify that. So there are some patients who we know have a pre-existing condition that has a big impact on fertility and if those patients have already been my gynecology patients and they've not yet tried for pregnancy I'll often give them some advice when you do come time for pregnancy even if you're less than 35 if you're not pregnant by six months then maybe come and see me so there are some modifications on that that um, at that time frame of trying depending on the patient's actual characteristics. There's also some other things that really if you're if you're 30 years old and you've been six months with absolutely no periods, there's really no absolutely no point in waiting another six months to get that looked into. So there are modifications and that normal fertility or that percentage of couples who will fall pregnant by that year of trying, that's that's with the proviso that they're that that woman is actually having periods. Yeah, absolutely. So, like all things in medicine, there's always exceptions to the absolutely. rules. <laughs> and you've already, I guess, touched on age already. But why is there this kind of discussion? It's always around age 35 that there's this delineation. Why is that? So, age is the biggest impact on fertility at any at any point in time of a woman trying for pregnant so age is the number one thing that we look at and it's the number one thing that impacts fertility for any woman and that's because essentially women are born with all of the eggs that they're ever going to have so they're already in place when when that woman is a baby in her mummy's uterus um, and then essentially she will just use up those eggs over time um, to the point where they run out and she becomes menopausal. So the the quantity of the eggs that are left and the quality of the eggs that are left and the potential of those eggs forming a pregnancy declines with age. The decline happens throughout the woman's life, reproductive life, but essentially the big dip in in that decline will will start at 35 and will really will massively have an impact when the when the woman reaches 40 so less than 35 age still has an impact but a lesser impact but after the age of 35 age really becomes a really significant factor in the chances of of any woman conceiving and so it's not that there's definitely no chance of falling pregnant after that point. It's just the, the issues around the quality and amount of eggs. Yeah, falling pregnant every single month, trying after the age of 35, declines wow. every year, and that really starts to have a massive impact by the age of 40. And so for young women who may be not ready to have 
you know, pregnancies currently, are there things that they can do to optimise their fertility now to help them later on in life? Yeah, so there's really nothing that a woman can do to change fundamentally the number of eggs that she has or to a certain extent the quality of the eggs she has. But there are some some general factors that I think anyone who's contemplating a pregnancy should be doing. I mean, the main things are leading a healthy lifestyle, so um, having a diet that is, that is healthy and, and balanced um, and doing a moderate amount of exercise regularly is really important. Um, maintaining a woman's weight within the healthy weight range it, is a part of that um, because we definitely know that increasing weight beyond a normal weight range absolutely has a really significant impact on the chances of falling pregnant, um, early pregnancy outcomes, and then just pregnancy outcomes as a whole for both the mother and the baby. There are also other things. So if a woman does smoke, obviously quitting smoking is an incredibly large factor. Um, Smoking is one of the biggest detrimental things um, that a woman can do with regards to her egg quality, and it also actually reduces quantity. So um, if a woman smokes, then she's likely to run out of eggs sooner than she would have if she hadn't smoked. Um, That also uh, goes with along with um, recreational drugs and marijuana. Um, If a woman is doing any of those kind of things, reducing or quitting those things before she contemplates pregnancy will obviously increase the chance of pregnancy. In the lead up to a woman actually wanting to fall pregnant, even before she's actually trying, we would absolutely recommend that all women take um, a folate and iodine-containing supplement for at least three months before they start to conceive is the ideal time frame. Um, and then it's all, it's often worth um, touching base with GP before you start to try so that you can have at least a basic set of bloods checking things like thyroid function, vitamin D level, where the woman looks anemic um, and whether she's immune to things that we would want her immune to in her pregnancy like chicken pox and rubella so that all of that can be optimised before she falls pregnant rather than sort of scrambling to do those things once she actually is pregnant. Um, There's also recommendations from the College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists that any woman who's contemplating having a pregnancy should be offered um, some genetic carrier screening. Um, So that now has come into play quite a bit in the the Australian sort of fertility um, workup of couples as well as talking to them about the options of limited and extended genetic carrier screening Um, and and if the woman or the or the couple wants to undergo that then then carrying those tests out as well Um, because obviously the ideal time to do that is before pregnancy so so many things I guess that people can be looking at in their younger years yeah Um, I think I guess it's also important just to mention like we're never saying, you know, everyone should aim for this weight or whatever. But it, yeah. when it comes to making trade-offs between, you know, if you do smoke, obviously that's a modifiable thing that people Absolutely. can address. So it's it's good to know fertility is something that's really important to you. These are the things that I can do to help. Yeah. And I guess, so as a, I guess I work in sexual health and so I prescribe a lot of contraception and something that a lot of young women are, seem to be really concerned about especially in the last year or so, I don't know why it is, but a lot of women seem concerned about the impact hormonal contraception will have on their fertility. I'd be interested in your opinion on that as a fertility specialist. 
Yeah, so I also, because I also see gynecology patients, prescribe a lot of contraceptives. And, yeah, I, I completely agree. There's an increase in women being concerned about whether that's going to have an impact on their future fertility. The fundamental answer to the question is no. Contraceptives do not have an ongoing long-term impact on fertility. I will put one rider on that that the Depo-Provera injection can actually have a reasonable delay in return to fertility. And I generally steer away from using Depo-Provera in, in a woman who's contemplating pregnancy in the not-too-distant future, as in within a year or so. Um, the reason is, is that the delay in return to fertility with Depo can be up to 18 months, whereas with most other contraceptives, the, the delay in return to fertility is very, very short. So with the Marina and with the Implanon rod, it's basically as soon as that is out, the, that woman's fertility should return immediately. With the oral contraceptive pill, there are um, a reasonable proportion of women who will have a slightly slow return of their cycle, as in the cycle might be a little bit longer for a couple of months. But by six months, that has absolutely gone. And any issues with the cycle length beyond six months of stopping the pill was not the pill. It's whatever that woman's cycle was going to be. And there's absolutely no long lasting effect beyond about six months. And I think that's something we often forget, you know, if you start on the pill when you're 18 and you take it for 12 years, obviously, as you've already mentioned, age is so important. So there's yeah. the natural changes going on in the background too. That's right. And women have yeah. absolutely no idea if they've been on the pill for, say, 15, 20 years, really what their own natural cycle is doing. And I guess another really common thing I get asked too is for people maybe not quite ready to start a family yet can I have some tests done just to check where my fertility is at in case, you know, if it's really bad, I might think twice and start a family sooner. What would you say to that? So I get referred patients in this exact situation quite commonly and it's difficult because we don't have fantastic ways of checking that person's actual chance of falling pregnant. What we can do is we can do a basic assessment including going through the, just their general history, their health history, um, their medication history and just identifying whether there's anything in there that actually might be impacting on their chance of falling pregnant. Um, if there's not, then I generally offer to do the AMH test or what's often referred to as the egg number test. The issue with that test, there's a couple of issues. The first one is that the oral contraceptive pill can have a significant impact on the result. So if a woman's on the oral contraceptive pill and she gets back a low AMH or egg reserve result, that may just be due to the suppressive effect of the pill on that hormone production and there may actually not be an issue with her egg reserve. So what I will often do, because a lot of people don't really want to go off the pill, um, I will say, well, let's just do the test. And if it's completely normal, then it's normal. If it's low, then I will usually suggest that, that if the patient really wants to clarify that, that they go off the pill until they get a return of their of their cycle. Once they get a return of the cycle, we will we'll re-measure it and just double check. 
The other thing that you can do is a pelvic ultrasound just to check that the pelvic structures are completely normal. And you can also do something called an antral follicle count, which is counting the number of eggs sitting in the ovary in that particular month. Again, the pill will basically make that test null and void. So if if the woman is on the pill, then we can't really do an antral follicle count. Even if we get a normal AMH and a normal antral follicle count result, though, it really still does not tell me whether that patient is going to fall pregnant easily or not. So if the woman comes back and finds that there's a really low result, then sometimes that will prompt them to think about doing something like egg freezing or maybe even contemplating having a baby sooner than what they originally anticipated. Um, But if it's a normal result and they say, well, can I wait five years to have a baby, I can't really give them Mm. an answer to that question so yes I can offer some investigations and potentially some slight reassurance as to where they sit compared to the average but it doesn't absolutely guarantee that that's going to lead them to have no issues falling pregnant. So not a foolproof test? No absolutely. And is that something that you have to see a fertility specialist to have those tests done? No, um, there are G- GPs can order those tests. The issue is is that not all GPs are happy to interpret those tests for patients. Mm. So I'll still get, even if the GP has ordered an AMH, I will still often get referred those patients just to have an actual discussion of what that means. And the other part of that is that some of these patients are actually considering doing things like egg freezing to sort of have some eggs sitting there Um, that are of that particular age just in case they need to use them in the future. And that's definitely a discussion to have with someone like myself rather than with a GP. And you mentioned the pill can impact on the test result. Is the same true for like the Implanon and Marina and things like that? Yeah, it's a bit difficult with those ones because there is a certain percentage of patients with a Marina and an Implanon in work that will actually suppress their cycle and therefore it will have the same impact as the pill, but not all patients. So it's difficult to give an absolute answer to that. Um, If they came back with a low, uh, you know, a significantly low result with those things in, my really only advice would be we'd need to potentially um, do a hormone profile and see whether they're actually cycling or not. Alrighty. So we might move on to, I guess, the more infertility focused questions. Can you tell us a bit about how common infertility is? Yeah. In Australia, infertility or difficulty falling pregnant affects about one in six couples throughout any time of life. Um, And there's actually a bit of a misconception that if you have one baby that you won't have any trouble having any more babies. In fact, what we call secondary infertility or having difficulty conceiving a subsequent child um, occurs in about one in 10 couples. Wow. So very common. common. Yeah. Yeah. And what are, I guess... What are the reasons most people struggle with infertility or subfertility? I'm using those words interchangeably. Yeah. Why, yeah. why do we use one, one more than the other? This is for my own interest now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they, they, they're kind of interchangeable ideas. Fertility and infertility are very, very much related. So we tend to swap between whether someone's fertile or having troubles with their fertility versus are they having subfertility or infertility. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of people, 
reasons why people might try and fall pregnant. Um, sometimes we actually find either a female-related or a male-related factor, or not not uncommonly they're actually they're, we find an issue on both sides. So we have sort of you know multifactorial um, issues. Um, so in just in just to give some basic examples, so female factors, uh, as we've already talked about, one of the biggest factors is just female age. Um, so women in their 40s who are struggling to fall pregnant, um, women who aren't ovulating regularly, so things like PCOS that lead to either complete what we call anovulation or lack of ovulation or um just infrequent ovulation, um, tubal disease, so women who have blocked fallopian tubes who either from previous ectopic pregnancies or previous um, infections that have affected the fallopian tubes, um, and endometriosis is a, is a common one as well. Um, male factor, there's quite a few different things that can affect male, male fertility. Um, so they can be sort of either that there's no sperm being made at all or there can be factors such as where the sperm is being made, but it's just there's no avenue for it to get out, so there's a blockage on the way out. Um, or sometimes there is sperm being made, but there's just being a reduction in the amount or um, of sperm or in how that sperm is moving, so it's just not working very well to achieve a pregnancy. Um, and then there's a huge percentage of couples, so about 40% of couples where we do all of the investigations and we actually don't find any particular reason that we can put our finger on um, and we call that unexplained, which is quite difficult for patients to deal with because I'm sitting there telling them, look, everything looks normal and they're sitting there saying, well, mm. we're still not pregnant. Yeah, it's such a significant chunk of people too, I guess 40%, yeah, that's huge. Yeah. yeah. And so for, say, for example, to a couple, male and female, both, say, 34 years old, come to you not having been able to fall pregnant, yeah. what kind of tests or investigations could they expect to go through to work out why they may not be having a baby? When I see a, a new couple uh, who are struggling to fall pregnant, um, I obviously take a really full and detailed history from both the male and the female. I then, depending on what they've already had done, so some patients have come from a GP who is either very interested or very comfortable in working up a, a couple who are struggling for pregnancy, and some patients come from a GP who isn't and therefore hasn't really done many investigations. But essentially, at some point in time, the things that are likely to be done uh, a blood test for, for the female partner, um, looking for things like whether she is ovulating, her general just pre-pregnancy blood, so things like her thyroid function, vitamin D level, an STI screen because it's always good to just make sure. Her AMH level, just as we discussed before, I tend to do that routinely because I find it really useful as in part of my workup. Um, and then specific blood tests, based on a history. So, for example, if someone's having really irregular periods and I'm worried that they've got, for example, polycystic ovarian syndrome, I may add in some extra investigations in relation to that, all in the one blood test generally. Um, I'll always want a pelvic ultrasound um, and if the woman is having regular periods, we usually time that to be just after her period. It's the best time to look at both the ovaries and the uterus um, and we get much more information doing the ultrasound at that point in time. For the male, I usually start with a, a semen analysis test. 
if that's completely normal, generally the male doesn't need any more investigations. If there's any issues with the, with the sperm results, then often the male will end up with a blood test and then with another sperm test about six to eight weeks down the track. Once we've done those basics, um, a lot of women will also end up with some kind of check of their fallopian tubes into where, or what we call tubal patency testing, so checking that the tubes are actually open and working. Um, we won't do that until we've had some other basic things because we want to know that we're, we, she is producing eggs and that the male has sperm before we put her through a slightly more invasive test. Um, but most women at some stage will end up with some kind of check of the tubes. There's a bunch of different ways that that's done and sometimes that involves also um, the addition of um, a day procedure with a laparoscopy um, based on whether that patient seems to have other things that we need to investigate in the pelvis or not. And this might be a really silly question, but if you stumble upon a potential reason they may not have been falling pregnant early in the piece, say on one of the initial blood tests, do you still carry on and do all the other things or can you kind of address them? I've had some patients who try and sort of jump the gun. um, So they hear from, you know, their friend or their sister or whoever, look, I I had to get a, a tube test done um, called a HSG so I just want that straight away and I haven't had you know my pelvic ultrasound yet and my husband hasn't had a sperm test really I don't want to do investigations that are not necessary if I found another reason for it so if we if we have a sperm test that comes back that shows there's a major major issue and there's what we call male factor infertility and that couple has a very low chance of conceiving spontaneously I'm not going to put that woman through extra investigations that she doesn't need. So I tend to do it in a bit of a stepwise fashion where I do basic bloods but an ultrasound and a sperm test and then I see the couple back with those results and then we go from there as to what we do as the next step. Yeah, so that's probably reassuring for people to know too. Like just because they go and see you doesn't mean they're going to need every test under the sun. (laughs) That's good. And then in the number of couples who just spontaneously fall pregnant, like I've had quite a few couples come back for the follow-up and they're like, well, um, we're actually <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's a happy yeah. outcome. <laughs> now, I guess this is a pretty broad question because you've said there's so many different reasons why people struggle with infertility, but what are the different ways you as a fertility specialist can help people fall pregnant yeah. if they're having difficulty? So, I mean, I get there's reasonable evidence that actually just reassurance is is really helpful. The tubal patency testing that I already spoke about actually is a form of treatment. So, if we flush the tubes with a fluid and the tubes are normal, it improves pregnancy chance in that couple for the next three months. So that's, I always talk to my patients about when they get to that test, this is not just an investigation, this is actually a form of treatment. There's also um, newer evidence and we are offering this in in my practice because I actually um, do these tubal patency tests for my own patients, that the addition of a, a, a different type of of fluid that we use to flush the tubes can actually improve pregnancy chances about another 10%. So there's an oil called lipidol, um, which has come out in the last few years with some really very 
high quality studies um, that have shown that it seems to have some additional impact on fertility above and beyond what we were already flushing the fallopians tubes with. So sometimes just doing that test in and of itself is enough to lead to to pregnancy. Um, Beyond that, cycle tracking. So a lot of patients struggle to know exactly when they ovulate and that can be a big thing, particularly if their cycle is not 100% consistent you know, bang on the dot every single month to know that their hormone levels were were appropriate throughout the month and to really know exactly when they ovulated in that month can be really helpful. Um, the fertility service that I work with, Janaea, actually offers all patients three months bulk build cycle tracking. So that's when we do blood tests around the time where we would anticipate that woman to ovulate so we can identify exactly where in the cycle she is the most fertile so they know exactly when to time having intercourse. We'll then follow that up with another blood test to check that, yes, she did actually ovulate, so we look for the progesterone lyres about a week later. And then if a period doesn't come, we also then check for pregnancy with a pregnancy blood test as well. Um, So that can be really empowering for women and for Mm. just a couple to just know that they got everything right and that they they yeah. weren't missing the boat because a lot of couples do worry about that. Um, a lot of couples have already, when they come and see me, they're already using the the a similar thing but with urine testing kits. So they're um, looking for the LH hormone in the urine around the time of just prior to ovulation, which is the most fertile time. Um, and if a woman is getting positives on those, that can be also really, really helpful. I do spend a reasonable amount of time reassuring Um, women who aren't getting positives on that, that they do have a reasonably high false negative rate. So it's not the be all and end all. Um, Other things that we can do, we can, if women aren't having regular ovulation or or aren't ovulating at all, we can use oral medication to try and induce ovulation. Um, So that's what we call oral ovulation induction. And then uh, beyond that, there's sort of more interventional things like um, laparoscopies to treat endometriosis, which can improve fertility, um, or or other conditions within the pelvis that might improve fertility. And then there's actual fertility interventions such as intrauterine insemination, IVF, IVF with the use of ICSI, which is injecting a sperm into an egg, and then also for some couples, um, using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or screening to actually test embryos and to put back embryos um, that don't carry genetic conditions and that are normal to improve chances of pregnancy. Wow. That's probably a lot of information for our listeners to digest, but um, I guess it's helpful to know, yeah, there are so many different ways that you can help. Yeah. And, um, Which is why, uh, it, you know, it's often reassuring to patients to hear that seeing someone about their fertility doesn't always equal IVF. Yeah, yeah. And a few people sent questions to me specifically asking about the ovulation induction agents. I'm not sure that's if that's just because they've heard about them or had people they know use them. But what are the kind of side effects people experience with those agents? Yeah, so the, I guess the first thing to say about oral ovulation induction agents is that there's absolutely no evidence of the use of those in a woman who has a regular ovulatory cycle so a regular cycle where she's releasing an egg with no issues in the cycle 
that there's no real place for those medications. I'll often get patients come in and say, well, what about that tablet that my friend, cousin, et cetera, et cetera, is using? Can't I just use that to fall pregnant? So I, I, I do often have to, to talk patients through the fact that there's really no place in someone who is ovulating in a nice normal cycle. When we do use those medications, um, we used to use something called Clomid as the first line and a lot of people have heard of that. That's actually been superseded by another tablet called letrozole and letrozole is now the first line and we would use that um, as the first line in, in almost everyone. Letrozole, one of the benefits of it is that it seems to have overall a much lower side effect profile compared to Clomid. I do, however, warn all patients taking um, the oral ovulation induction agents of a bunch of things that might happen. Things that are reasonably common is a bit of bloating, a little bit of potentially abdominal tenderness, particularly around the time of ovulation. Things like nausea, hot flushes, breast tenderness were much more common with Clomid, but I do still have a very occasional patient who might complain of one of those with letrozole. Um, very occasionally, some women will get severe headaches, particularly even with the aura or the visual changes, um, and I always warn them of that. And if they do get that, I usually tell them to stop taking the medication and let me know. Um, and then the biggest potential side effect that I need, that I always talk patients through is the increased rate of multiple pregnancy or twins. So so that is something else that Clomid, sorry, that Letrozole seems to do slightly better than Clomid um, in terms of a slightly lower twinning rate. So the background rate of twins in the population is about 3 to 4% um, and Letrozole seems to put that up to about 5 to 8%. So most women will still go on to have one, one baby at a time, but there's definitely an increase and it's an increase in non-identical twins and it's because of the potential of the ovary releasing more than one egg at a time. And I, I feel like infertility, we always hear these acronyms thrown around, ICSI, IUI, IVF. Can you just kind of explain what they mean and what the difference is? (laughs) IUI is intrauterine insemination. So what we do with that is we actually, it, it relies on the woman is actually ovulating. You can't do it if she's not ovulating. And then it's usually using either the partner sperm um, for example, in a situation where, um, say, for example, the couple has difficulty actually having intercourse. Um, so I have some couples who the woman has severe vaginismus and she just can't actually have intercourse Um, or if a woman is using donor sperm it's one of the options as well. Um, So what we do is we do blood tests just like normal cycle tracking where we find out when the woman is the most fertile in the month and then we bring her in at that time do a speculum examination basically just like when you're having a pap smear, a very thin tube into the uterus and then we inject the sperm directly into the uterus. So we're still relying on natural conception essentially. We're just trying to put the sperm at the right place at the right time. And is this similar to the turkey baster thing people do at home or yeah, supposedly do at home? Going all the way into the uterus, so it's getting past the cervix as opposed to at home insemination is generally actually just into the top of the vagina, so which is similar to having intercourse. Yeah. So IVF is the process of using a series of medications to stimulate the growth of the eggs in the ovary in any given month and then collecting those eggs 
putting them together with some sperm, creating embryos, and then putting an embryo back inside the woman to to, um, form a pregnancy. That covers IVF with what we call conventional IVF or IVF with the use of something called ICSI. Conventional IVF and ICSI refer to the way that the eggs are fertilised. So with conventional IVF, we require normal levels of sperm. And what basically happens is that the sperm and the eggs are just prepared and they're put together in a special embryo culture fluid um, and they're just left to fertilise on their own. The benefit of that is that there's absolutely great evidence that if you have normal sperm, that there are higher pregnancy rates using conventional IVF, okay? The ICSI is an acronym for intracytoplasmic sperm injection and what that means is basically taking each mature egg that you collect during IVF and injecting one sperm directly into the egg. We use that for male factor infertility, so we basically are bypassing the fact that there are less sperm than what we need, and that's basically revolutionised the treatment of male factor infertility. It's essentially made it so that even men who have very, very, very few sperm can often father a biological child. We also use the process of ICSI for any time we use um, any of the pre-implantation diagnosis or, or screening or where we actually screen the embryos. And that's because we don't in, in conventional IVF, there's lots of sperm left attached to around the, 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 the egg. When we go to test the embryo, we don't want to inadvertently be testing the genetics of the sperm. We uh-huh. want to be testing the genetics of the embryo. So we have to use ICSI in that, in that situation because we don't want any sperm left around that might give us a, 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 a false result, as it were. Okay, that's really interesting and helpful. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a common point of confusion. We would also use ICSI yeah. in anyone who's had a cycle of IVF using conventional IVF and had there was problems with fertilisation. I see. Yeah. And I actually, I've interviewed a lady, Karinya, about her experience with um, ICSI because, I I mean, it's helpful to hear from a medical perspective, but it's also nice to hear, you know, the patient perspective and what it's like actually to go through it. So hopefully people find that interesting too. And so just finally, I guess, do you have any resources that you would suggest for individuals or couples who are struggling to get pregnant, just for information? Most um, fertility um, groups. So, you know, for example, I work with Jenea, um, but there's a multitude of different um, uh, fertility treatment groups. Most of their websites have an enormous amount of information on them. Um, and I would often be very encouraging of patients to, you know, in the initial stages, go onto one of those websites and go through the information because it often talks about a lot of the things we've talked about today. So what might be the investigations, what might be some of the interventions that they might have in those kind of things once it actually gets sort of down to a bit more nitty-gritty of actual things like someone needing to go undergo IVF or ICSI or something like that um, I'll often give them an actual booklet most fertility um, services will also have information nights for patients so if a patient is thinking that maybe they 
that they're at that point where they might need to undergo um, something like IVF, there will um, often be an actual face-to-face or in these these times sort of Zoom type of information sessions um, to talk patients through a little bit more about what might actually be involved for them to demystify that a little bit because most people have heard of IVF but do they really know what that means for them? Not really. You've mentioned kind of, I guess, cycle tracking in a slightly more involved sense, but there seems to be like a million different apps that you can use. Do you know, like, is there one that's particularly good or useful or are they all the same? Um, There's tons. I'm very, very, very all about using the app because I must say um, prior to the apps being around, you would ask a patient when was the first day of your last period and 90% couldn't really tell you very much. Um, and it's really, really helpful for me when a patient's been using that for, say, six to 12 months of them trying for pregnancy and they come in and I can go to the summary um, and see what their cycle length has been like over that time. That's a really helpful thing for me. Um, so there's tons and tons on the market. I mean, the big ones around are things like Flow and Clue and those kind of ones. I would say as long as it gives you the ability to put in information about, you know, your period length, any funny bleeding that you might be getting, um, and and it and it changes based on your cycle, um, then it's going to be recording the, the right information. I was involved in a questionnaire at Newcastle University who were doing a bit of a study on the apps, um, but I haven't actually seen them publish their work yet. They were sort of looking at which apps might be better um, at predicting fertile times and those kind of things, but I think that they're still doing that study at the moment. Um, but, yeah, as the 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 thing that I think is the most helpful is when it gives a summary of the cycle length over, over whatever time that patient's been putting in the, the information. Okay, great. Good to know. Because a lot of people have asked me that too. And I'm like, I don't know, they all seem pretty similar. <laughs> so that's, that's good. Kind of hard, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess just specifically in terms of um, same-sex couples or gender diverse people, are there any specific resources when it comes to fertility for the, those groups that you would recommend? Yeah, again, most fertility services will have areas of their website, particularly for same-sex couples with information with regards to that. I think in terms of specific resources, I don't really have any major things. And I think the main issue is that um, with, with this community, every single person or couple is very individual and has a very different mm-hmm. potential set of circumstances that the generic information sort of only can go so far, as it were. Um, so I've, I've seen a couple of resources on the internet, but they're often from, say, the United States or various other places overseas. And so a lot of the information in terms of generic options are really helpful, but the specifics is not really helpful for the Australian population. I would usually just be, um, recommend them to go to a fertility service website and read whatever information information there and if they want more information then seek the opinion of the fertility specialist so they're actually getting advice for their particular situation. 
Yeah, I guess that's always the way, isn't it? At the end of the day, everyone's individual and <laughs> you're only going to get that conversation tailored to your situation if you see someone that can take into account all the different aspects. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to answer all my questions today. I've learned a lot. And <laughs> yeah, um, I'll link uh, just some resources in the show notes if anyone is interested to do some further reading. And yeah, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. You to you, you to me, you to us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money podcast. Podcast.